in my daughter's school and a lot of educators these days say, I'm, I'm, I'm not a creative person yet, right? Like, like it's a choice. You could be creative if you wanted to. And the fact that you encounter struggle in being creative doesn't, doesn't mean you're not good at it. It means, it means that's how you learn is, is through that pathway. That's, that's sorry, uh, but that's, that's the way it works. That was Chris Ertel, author of Moments of Impact, and this is the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Natural Born Thinkers, a podcast designed to help you live a more creative lifestyle. My name is Sam Hunter and my job is to help people tap into their creative potential to solve their biggest individual and business challenges. I set up this podcast to reveal the secret source behind the creative thinking process and to provide a perspective on how we can live a life that enables us to more confidently draw upon our natural creativity. I believe that our minds are all uniquely wired to think differently and that the world depends on our diverse creative potential. Today's session is all about creating experiences that help you to think differently. How many of you listening today find yourselves with a crazy meeting calendar where pretty much every 30-minute block is a Zoom or teleconference? How many of you have sat around a boardroom table trying to hash out your organization's biggest, messiest challenges? And how many of you find that this way of meeting and thinking with others is conducive to enabling your most creative thinking? Based on my experience working as a consultant and meeting designer, I would feel pretty confident in saying that a majority of you do not feel that the way in which you experience meetings today ignites creative thinking. I imagine instead that a lot of you out there are more likely to be suffering from meeting fatigue and overly ambitious agendas where there is little time to go to the bathroom, let alone think. But what if I told you it didn't have to be that way? Today's guest is Chris Ertel a leader in a large management consultancy and co-author of Moments of Impact, How to Design Strategic Conversations that Accelerate Change. Chris also just happens to be my mentor, so it's a real privilege to have him on the podcast today. In this podcast, Chris and I talk about learning, both at an individual and group level. We talk about different techniques you can learn to wire or rewire your brain to think more creatively, And we also focus on how to create shared learning experiences that you can have with your colleagues to tackle your biggest adaptive challenges. Chris's book, Moments of Impact, is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And in it, he and his co-author, Lisa Solomon, detail an easy-to-use framework to help you construct better meetings and deliver more effective outcomes. This book has certainly been my guide to designing meeting experiences, and I would recommend it to anyone where meetings is an essential part of your day job. If you can learn the art of creating a shared learning experience versus a meeting, I think that you will find that you will need to be perhaps in less meetings, will definitely deliver improved outcomes in the ones that you do attend, and ultimately, I think you will find the opportunity to unlock your best creative thinking potential. Hello, Chris. Welcome to Natural Born Thinkers. Hi, Sam. Good to be with you. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's funny, Chris, actually, because in preparing for this podcast, I reflected on the times that we're in right now. And I think 2020 is somewhat synonymous with 
Zoom meetings, as a lot of people are on Zoom. And this made me ask the question, in today's climate, what percentage of daily meetings do people feel enable them to think differently and deliver new insights? I'd be happy to wager about 5% of folk are probably having really productive Zoom meetings in this time. Or am I being too generous? Yeah, uh, 5% sounds pretty spot on to me, unfortunately. And Folks in meetings, you know, are used to getting stuff done, but if you set a, you know, a reasonable bar for creativity, then yeah, not, not, not very often. Yeah. But I'm so happy to have you on this podcast because we did actually start our podcast, I guess, a couple of years ago, right before I left the States and the technology didn't work. So we just scrapped it and went for dinner. <laughs> um, wise choices. But I'm really great to have you this time around. And as I laid out in the intro there, the the idea of, of meetings and having the right construct to think differently is so important to the creativity conversation. I think sometimes people believe that having a creative idea is almost like seeing a miracle. Perhaps they've lost sight of their own creative potential or are trapped in the conventions of their daily routine or are in teams or routines that don't enable them to really think differently or out of the norm. And frankly, are probably just having terribly constructed meetings with overpacked agendas, no time to think, let alone think differently. Uh, so ultimately, as a, an expert in meeting design, and consulting. I think there's so much we can learn from you today in this conversation. So thank you so much for joining part two of our conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Sam. Let's do it. Perfect. Although I can't take, we can't go out for dinner after this one, given that we're now on other sides of the world, so to say. I'm at my home in uh, Berkeley, California today. So for so many reasons, I had to lay out a structure for this podcast, but if there's anything that I've learned from you over the, I guess, the five years I got to work with you, it's structure is important. So the way in which I've separated this out is in three stages. And the first one is the thinker. So for everyone listening today, the thinker will be the first section and it will be an introduction to Chris and the thinking techniques that he uses to support clients with their biggest challenges. Then from there, we'll go to the meeting designer. So this will be a focus on your book, Chris, and specifically the frameworks that you outline and the experiences you outline in moments of impact. And then the last piece is the author. So deep diving into the process of writing a book and what it taught you. Makes sense. Let's kick off with part one, the thinker. I've just alluded to the fact that you and I worked together for five years Mm -hmm. and we were working at the time in an innovation function within a large consulting organization. You were already an established leader at this time with a career in strategy consulting. And I think your book was on the editing suite. Yes, I think I met you before the book and then I got a signed first edition when the book was was come out. So um, that was great. <laughs> but before we tuck into the meeting experience design and, and book, I thought we should spend a little time just going back to your career from a chronological order to understand how you got here. Because you started your career, I think, as a scenario planning and future thinking consultancy. But before arriving there, you did your undergrad in cultural anthropology and a PhD in demography. And on the surface, it seems as though there is a leap from the study of humans to business strategy. Can you provide some insights into your education to career trajectory and why a strategy consultancy seemed like the right fit? Yeah, so I mean, I reflect on this myself because it was a very circuitous path and not not a terribly deliberate one, honestly. 
Uh, I went to undergraduate at Grinnell College, uh, just a good liberal arts school in the middle of Iowa, and studied, you know, studied broadly, really was kind of uh, a, just, just I've, I've been a generalist from day one. I've always been hard to peg into a specialization, and that can be a real problem. I mean, I know uh, a fair number of folks who got stuck in kind of perpetual grad student uh, world um, where they drifted from one thing to another and it didn't sum up. So I think when I reflect back on my career, one of the things is I have sort of stumbled my way into making being a generalist effective, which I think is is not an easy thing to pull off. And I think when I was younger and just exploring a lot of different random things, I think I didn't really appreciate the risk I was taking in doing so. And it's probably just as well, because uh, obviously it worked out in the end, but uh, it, it might not have. Um, and so just, you know, my, my educational training is extremely broad. You know, I took sort of one-on-one in everything and did not get, you know, did not get super specialized. The PhD in demography is where obviously I, I dug deep, but that was in an area I don't even work in anymore. I went very deep in a thing, but then I left that thing, thing behind. Uh, and when I look back at kind of what's the common thread here in a way, it's it's the two the two identities that kind of underpin my my training really are journalism uh, and cultural anthropology. Journalism and cultural anthropology are two disciplines that are all about sort of peeking behind the curtain and understanding how things work and seeing what's really going on backstage. And I think that drove a lot of my interest in getting into to business consulting, honestly, being a generalist and being passionate about understanding how things really work and having that opportunity to be backstage in an incredible variety of situations. So that's that's kind of the, the identity piece of it. And then while I was writing my dissertation at Berkeley, I went to, to UC Berkeley for, for, for the demography degree. I read, I stumbled on and read a book called The Art of the Long View by Peter Schwartz. And that was sort of the Bible of scenario planning. It kind of still is, even though it's it's quite it's been out twenty five ish years now. Uh, and that book really introduced to me a way of thinking about the world that I had never encountered before, and which struck me as as just hugely intuitive. That is to think about the future as a range of multiple possible outcomes and a wider range than we normally think about, not high, medium, and low. So the world we find ourselves in today with coronavirus, obviously, is something that futurists have talked about for a long time, this possibility. In fact, Bill Gates famously predicted it in a TED Talk around 20, I think it's 2015. But most people didn't, you know, pandemic, they sort of vaguely knew it was a possibility, but didn't take it too seriously. And then bang, it's dominating our lives, right? So this, this way of thinking, scenario planning, struck me as so intuitive. I read the book. I fell in love with it. I found the guy who wrote it, and I basically badgered Peter Schwartz and his colleagues uh, for about six months until they finally just just gave up and gave me a job. And that was <laughs> and that was 1996, and it's the last, literally the last job interview uh, that I've had. Oh, that's that's really great. It's, it sounds. I mean, I think it's actually really refreshing for if we have any, uh, I guess, um, graduates or perhaps people who have left university or and haven't been able to find a job yet in this climate to understand that you know you don't have to panic at the beginning of your career if you haven't found your specialism it's healthy to be curious and follow your interests and and it will take you somewhere and you're not the first person who I've spoken to where a book 
was a key milestone in helping them find their career. I did a podcast with my uncle and he read a book on a plane on the way to his gap year after school before going to college um, called Volcanoes. And Mm -hmm. funnily enough, (laughs) he ended up becoming a volcanologist however many years (laughs) later and ended up working with the guy who wrote it. (laughs) So um, I guess keep curious and keep reading us us some key insights there. And I mean, you obviously got in touch with Peter Schwartz, ended up doing your scenario planning. And you I think the art of the long view also has that strategic lens about how to, um, I guess it's the future scenario planning and then then with that enabling you to think strategically about how you want to position yourself um, to succeed whatever the future might unfold. I think once I was told that I wasn't strategic enough, and I think a lot of people are told you need to be more strategic. And I think strategic thinking is a cousin of creative thinking. They're two different modes in how you might use your brain. And everybody thinks they're a mystery. And everyone thinks that there are those that are just born to be gifted at it. I really feel that it's a language. And you have to just like you might have to learn French, there's a a way in which you have to interpret and understand and learn how to train your brain to think strategically. So for me, and I know I've been told before that I shouldn't over-aggrandize my uh, podcast guests' achievements, but you you really do nail strategic thinking. <laughs> and if there was anyone I were to go to to learn from, it would be yourself. So the question I have for you is, can you debunk the myth around strategic thinking a little bit for, for people listening who might have been told you need to think more strategically and not necessarily know what to do? And maybe even boil it down into the art of it or the science of it into three to four ideas that people could easily relate to. Yeah. So, boy, I mean, telling people to be more strategic is just not very helpful guidance, is it? Right. It's it's it is like telling people telling somebody to be more creative. It's, it's like, OK, how? Um, yeah. Not 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 particularly helpful to me. You know, strategy is really kind of poorly understood. It's a bit mysterious. At, at the end of the day, strategy is is really about two big things. One is char- setting a direction, right? So, so where are you trying to get to, and, and, and identifying a, a, a direction that that you want to get to. And the second piece is set is sort of managing priorities, setting priorities. We all have limited time, limited resources, and how do we allocate resources in the way that's going to get us mo- most effectively to our destination? I think those are the two big questions and strategy. The the environment in which we do strategy has changed so dramatically over the decades that a lot of the traditional writing on strategy, while not irrelevant, is, is less relevant today. And the dominant metaphor of strategy kind of when I started this work was still chess, right? That that yeah. uh, it's a game like chess and you know you know, there are rules, there's a playing field. There's and, and you're always trying to think a few moves further out than the competition, um, but it's it's a bounded game where the rules are clear, the players are known, and so forth, right? And what what's obviously happened in the last few decades is what's called VUCA world, the world of vol- volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, where competition changes, the whole markets shift in ways we don't anticipate ahead of time. And you can't sort of, while analysis can inform strategy, analysis alone is no longer sufficient. 
you need to see around curves better than the competition. You need to see further out. And so the whole, you know, the whole domain of, 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 of analysis just doesn't, doesn't cut it alone anymore, though it's an important input. So, you know, what is strategy today? To, to me, the principles of scenario planning are the core principles of strategy. That is, you need to think further out than the, than the competition. You need to really be thinking about deep structural change, not just, you know, quarter to quarter, year to year. But what are the deep structural forces in society and markets that are gonna that are gonna create opportunity or create risk? Uh, you need to think outside in. Most organizations, especially big organizations, are really hung up in thinking about themselves most of the time. I mean, it's really shocking the extent to which that's true. Uh, but really being focused on the markets, on the customers, on the the way the world is changing, having enough of that critical mass of that thinking. Using multiple perspectives, so getting inputs from not the usual suspects, uh, listening not only to your customers, but the people who aren't your customers, right? Why aren't they your customers? Really, you know, looking at talking to younger people, <clears throat> people in your organization who aren't leaders, um, but who have a more, in some cases, more fluid sense of where things might be heading. Uh, and the hardest part of strategy, I think, really is is integrative thinking, because it really, at the end of the day, it is more art than science strategy. It requires connecting the dots across a, a disparate range of disciplines, disparate range of observations, and coming up with insights that are integrative. And integrative thinking, while it can be learned, it's almost impossible to teach Right. So some skills you can teach, like you want to learn a new programming language. There's, you know, you, there's a manual for that. You, you go through the paces and you'll get there. That's not this is this is the other kind of skill like like creativity itself. Right. Where you can learn to be creative over time. But there is no manual. There's no cookbook. You, you just there's 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 just being in the right kinds of situations, being challenged in the right kinds of way with the right kinds of people around you to help elevate your your thinking and understanding over time. Right. But and this is exactly why I really think that creativity is um a cousin of strategic thinking because as you said, you, you you if you tell someone to think creatively, not helpful. With creativity as well, it's the same thing. It's about bringing in different information sets to basically fire your neurons to make different connections between the stuff you've already got in your mind. And to a degree, there is integrative thinking about different combinations to enable you to think of a new product. I guess the difference with strategy and creativity is creativity, you're bringing in information, data sets and making different combinations to come up with something that's new and apt. Whereas with strategy, the lens is slightly different. You're using information sets to help and integrative thinking to help you forge a future direction of where you might be able to go. So there are similar thinking, I guess, techniques or ways in which you're using information in your mind, um, but to produce a different result. Yeah, I think cousins is a good is a good metaphor. I, I I agree. And also, if you're trying to outwit or outthink what the competition's going to do, and I guess no one, you know, well, Bill Gates, one person, <laughs> kind of had a big belief that coronavirus, this pandemic we're experiencing, was likely to happen. That you know, someone somewhere in a strategic 
thinking has to essentially have an imagination because you're projecting and you're imagining and envisioning all these things that might happen that perhaps never have or never will. So there has to be a level of creativity or imagination in having that forethought, particularly when you're doing scenario planning. So maybe could we talk a little bit about that and specifically what enables you to think beyond the norm? And are there any techniques that we could uh, learn from you as we're trying to build our own capabilities? I, I think I could be a lot better at this. Candidly, it's it's very hard, and so I, you know, I would say I'm a pretty good student of this, but um, I, I struggle with um, being better. And, and and the coronavirus, I just want to say, is really interesting kind of case study in a way because it, it wasn't just Gates; it was it was wide swaths of the public health community, right? We're, we're sounding the alarm on this for a long time. Um, so there were a lot of public health professionals at CDC and other places who felt that a pandemic along the lines of what we're now experiencing was more or less inevitable. And the question was the timing of it, right? It could, it's like a, it's like an earthquake, right? In the Bay Area, we know what's going to come, but you know, it's going to be tomorrow or 30 years from now. And Gates was, was the one, the one business leader who sort of listened to those voices and amplified them and took them out and said, no, really, guys, you've got to be concerned about this. And it's just an interesting question, what you do with a wild card scenario like that, right, which has a, a huge impact, and it's kind of baked in. It's going to happen, but you have no idea when. And so I think it's a really interesting question to say, should our organizations have been planning for this ahead of time, knowing it was going to eventually happen, or you know, was it okay not to spend resources on that and just deal with it when it arose as, as, as it did? I don't know the answer to that question. I think that's a really interesting philosophical question. I'm not sure there's an empirical way to, like, answer it even. Uh, would be better off. Um, but, but getting back to your, your, your actual question, um, I think that my, my training, such as the word for strategy, really was to be a generalist and to study a lot of different things and to develop early on in my training, really really in college, to develop these the, the muscles around connecting the dots between disparate bodies of knowledge, having to write papers. So in college, I studied like American studies, which was an integrative discipline across political science and history and economics and, uh, and culture. And so I would have to write papers kind of relating uh, ideas from different disciplines from, from day one. And of course, in most academic disciplines, you're, you're, you're trained to sort of hunker down in, in, in your lane. Um, and so I, th I think that that's the, um, you know, that, that's the muscle set is the integrative thinking. This is it, because it's the critical constraint, because otherwise anybody can read a bunch of stuff on strategy and sort of get the general gist of it. But if you don't have those muscles in place, it's like, you can understand how to play chess, right? You can understand the rules of chess in a day, um, but it would take years to be a master. It, it really is laying the tracks, the cognitive tracks around integrative thinking is the critical constraint. And it typically starts early on. It's an interesting question to say, if you're 30 or 40 and you decide you want to develop these, this skill set, is, is there still time to do so? You know, I think brain plasticity is is remarkable. So the answer is probably yes. But I haven't seen a lot of examples of people, you know, deciding mid career. Let's say they're gonna they're gonna get good at this. It's more typically uh, that they already had the 
that they were oriented that way already from their tra- their early training. Right. Well, I mean, we see that all the time. So I'm sure you've had it in your sessions. And when I was leading workshops, people would come in and just say, I'm not creative. So mm-hmm. <laughs> right off the bat, they're, they're in a session to, to think differently. <laughs> and that's their mindset coming in. So, you know, you've got to work work from there and, and trick them out of it. And, and there are techniques that you can do. And I've been trying to dig into the neuroscience of all of this. And my understanding is that we have our mind is made up of billions of neurons and they all talk to each other. So when you learn a new skill, neurons will fire each other and um, they'll help your body develop the processes and the the memory and the muscle to, to remember how to do it the next time. And the more and more you do something, the more and more your brain becomes efficient and it creates its little network of neurons that know how to do painting, for example. Right. And, and my, my and myelin is the, is the biological mechanism. It's the, the, the coding on these connections that wraps them and solidifies them and so forth. The, the book, The Talent Code, talks about this in some de- detail, um, the, me- the mechanism of myelin and there's other books as well. But yeah, the more you, it's it's the old, the, the folk expression around that is, is neurons that, that fire together, wire together. You're laying these deep grooves. And that, and that learning of that kind, importantly, can really only happen through struggle. People tend to think, well, if I if something comes easily to me, then I that, that means I'm a natural at it. And that's what I should be doing or whatever. But the reality is that that, that learning, deep learning requires struggle. If if you're not struggling, you're not really you're not really learning. You're not really laying laying new tracks. Exactly. And I think you've got to fire the neurons to wire them. But I think there's also got to be like a, a rewiring as well. I think the idea is once you look at the brain like that and you understand that it's full of uh, this neural landscape, full of your memories, processes, interests, um, motivations, once you have that perception that you can essentially, they all speak to each other in a particular way and they're wired to to do what's natural to you, you can also then start to look at it from a different perspective to say, hey, I could probably learn how to create new neural pathways by bringing in new information, firing neurons in a different way to wire and connect them with something else. And once you have that breakthrough or look at it from that lens, you can start to see that there is potential to think differently. But then you come to the next hurdle, as you say, which is, do I want to do it? Because you're not going to be like when you paint for going back to the painting analogy, I still paint like a five year old, um, which is great right now because it makes the artwork that I help my children with look really good for their age because <laughs> they're three. <laughs> um, but terrible if they were 15. But the the wiring in my mind stopped there. Yeah. And um you know, to for me to become good, I'd need to put more and more time in it, and develop um, and be- get mastery, and have much more efficiency in how those um, neural connections speak to one another. But it then comes to down to: Do I want to do that? Do I want to go through that learning journey? Right. I think that's where it comes to when you want to think differently. You have to decide how much do you really want to think differently, and are you prepared to go on the journey to do it? Because no expert in the world has ever become an expert overnight. They had to work. They had to try. Right. And there, there's just a lot to unpack there. But the, one of the phenomena that I find fascinating is is that of the, the hemisphere dectomy. Um, that is, there's 
you know, some some folks over over the years have had um, cases of epilepsy that are so severe that they they have a, they struggle to live a normal life, right? And they're so desperate that they undergo a hemispherectomy. They have half their brain removed, right? And when they first started doing these, um, the fear was this person will be paralyzed on the other side of their body, right? Typically motor control for the right side of the body is on the left side of the brain and vice versa. And you think, well, this, this, this is going to fix your, your, your problem with uh, epilepsy, but you're, you're not going to use, you're not going to be able to use the right side of your body as a result. Sorry about that. And that turned out not to be the case. In most cases, people undergo under hemispherectomies. It takes a good deal of time and a lot of work and everything else, but they are able to rewire their brain entirely so that they're not paralyzed, at least in many cases. And that's just so shocking, right? The idea that you could remove half of somebody's brain and they could still be functional, um, not 100%, but but having a life worth living and actually being quite functional, it's it's just kind of shocking. And I think it, it, it tells us, you used at one point the word natural, and I think... I'm not persuaded that anything is natural uh, to, to humans, you know, that you're a natural swimmer or a natural strategist or whatnot. There are a few biological things, sure, like height or broad shoulders, right, which help you in certain domains. If you're five foot four, you're probably never going to play in the NBA. Fair enough. But the idea of there being a natural gift for creativity or strategic thinking or any of these like modern skill sets that you know, really have no particular evolutionary purpose. I mean, I, certainly strategic thinking doesn't. I don't know about creativity uh, having an evolutionary purpose, but I don't I don't think they're genetically passed on. Nobody's identified markers or anything like that. I just think that the influences of what you do early in your life are very, very great. Right? You, you, you start wiring yourself in this way and you get into this increasing returns and there you go. And then somebody shows up and something comes easily to them. And you're like, oh, you're a natural. And it's like, no, I mean, nine times out of 10, if not more, it's like, no, there's this, there's this whole story behind how this person showed up in front of you being good at this thing. Is Roger Federer a natural at tennis? Um, put in the hours. I, you know, if, he, if they trained him to be a golfer from day one, he'd probably be a great golfer. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really true, actually, because um, I read that there were some scientists and they did a study and they found that just like your fingerprints, your brain has a unique print. Like no one's brain looks or works exactly the same as someone else's. I, I guess maybe look probably from, you know, the anatomy, but in terms of how it all works together, you have your own unique brain print, I guess, is what I took from that. And it's because of how you're nurtured, your experiences in your life. We all have different experiences that help us learn and, and create those that neural landscape that we have in our minds. So I guess, yeah, that's, you know, we're all born with the same blank canvas of mind with the basics, and then we fill it in. And I'm, I'm probably really embarrassing scientist of world over with my generalization of this. But then, like, I had to simplify it somehow because it is complex. Um, you know, you then fill it in with the experiences that round you out. I, I, I mean, I, I suppose if I were to declare if I had a strength in my life, I am creative. I, I find it easy to create conceptually. Horrible artistically, but great conceptually. <laughs> um, so, you know, my son just got his three and a half and he just got his school report. 
and they said he's incredibly creative, he loves to explore, he's hugely curious. And was he born that way? I I honestly like we play very creative games. Like we just made a tree house and a little bot with a cardboard box and sticks and balls that you connect together to create um, whatever shape you like and for a little toy owl that he got. And I wonder if it is these experience that he's having where I make him do crazy stuff <laughs> that's rubbing off. I don't, I don't I don't think I don't think that's a question at all personally but yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny. I mean neither of us are neuroscientists it's necessary to say, right? I mean we're we're both reading this stuff and processing for what does it mean for our lives. Uh and and I and I think as parents, you know, I have a 12-year-old daughter and what what you expose kids too early on and what activities they choose is is you know is is more determinative than we'd like to admit as to how they're you know what they're going to be interested in what they're going to end up doing and so forth um and it's as a parent it's like you want to just put the whole um the whole buffet of of human possibility and experience before them and at the same time you know that 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 kids brains are are pruning right they're pruning aggressively they're shutting down connections that aren't being used. Uh, they're shutting down, you know, possibilities. Now those possibilities can be reopened later, but they're you're you're laying you're laying grooves early on, and and you want to yeah you want to expose kids to as much as possible and not not forego their options, but know that that there's there is no scenario where you keep all options open. Um, I have I have one the one of the most amazing cases of brain plasticity that I've encountered personally. Is my my tennis coach uh, in his early fifties uh, had a, an inoperable issue with his right hand uh, he, where he he couldn't play anymore, and of course for for me tennis is a hobby and it's fun for him it's his his livelihood, and so not playing tennis really wasn't uh, an option for him and he was an internationally ranked open open division player I mean did one big tournaments and stuff as a, as an amateur. And uh, so he just, and he's like this hugely Zen-like guy. And, and so he's like, okay, I guess I can't play with my right hand anymore. And he just took a hopper full of balls to our club, to the backboard, and like with, uh, with his left hand, and just starts hitting with his left hand against the wall. Like here's, you know, hour number one of 10,000 hours or however many, right? And just <clears throat> rebuilt his game from the ground up with his left hand. I mean, I can't sign my name with my left hand. The motor skills, the fine motor skills required in tennis are insane. And to start from zero after being like an internationally ranked player uh, on the other side of your, your body and go through that process of being a beginner again and sucking for a long time right, <laughs> before you could actually play decently again. It's, it's one of the most amazing accomplishments I've ever been witness to because I watched him do it from like the earliest days of it. And he got to the point where he's like 80 plus percent of his former self, right? He's not as good as he was, but holy smokes, man, he's good. He's a really good player. Kick my butt. That's an amazing story. I mean, I guess the motivation for him to want to do that as well is, is, is the driver. He had a huge driver. Yes, it was his livelihood, but I'm sure it's also his passion too, that he wasn't ready to... Absolutely. Give up on and he couldn't he couldn't imagine not playing. It just wasn't he couldn't imagine it. If 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 he was paralyzed from the waist down, he'd be playing wheelchair tennis, you know. Yeah, and it well it makes me I guess for a more I guess publicly available story to to bring what we're talking about to life, there's that 
that guy who learned to ride a bicycle the other way. So whether you're conscious of it or not, when you get on a bike, the wheel tw- you, the, to start the balance, you twist the, the handlebars to twist the wheel to the right. And then you go from there. And I, I believe that's universal. Yes. Created a bike that makes you have to turn the wheel to the left and to start the balance. And, you know, he fell off multiple times <laughs> trying to relearn how to ride a bike. And then finally he got it. Then I think he struggled a bit to shift back to riding a regular bike because his brain had wired the other way. Um, and I think his, he did the same. He, he had his son ride a bike. He was young. I don't think he was more than six or so and his son figured it out in a matter of weeks how to do it the other way because of that plasticity in the mind that we've talked about the difference between an adult and a child yeah it's a great it's a great illustration and it, and it also you know a lot of adults you know you think that no knowing what to do is is only a small part of the challenge right but yeah grown-ups we all still have plasticity my mom is turning uh, 95 in a couple of weeks and she still has plasticity she's still learning new things putting it all together there's really little excuse for someone to say okay you could say i'm not maybe you come into a, a, a an experience where you say i'm not creative or i'm not strategic that's that's your belief set i think um the thing that you would say now and retort to someone who says that is like well that's what you believe but actually the potential for you to be that sits in your brain in fact you're biologically prepared to do it and you have lots of different information in your brains from the experiences you've had in your life that prepares you for this it's actually a choice whether you want to be a creative or not it's not an absolute i am or i'm not Right, right. And my daughter's school and a lot of educators these days say, I'm, I'm, I'm not a creative person yet, right? Like, like, it's a choice. You could be creative if you wanted to. And the fact that you encounter struggle in being creative doesn't, doesn't mean you're not good at it. It means, it means that's how you learn, is, is through that pathway. That's, that's sorry, uh, but that's, that's the way it works. And I guess another thing that's come up if we've talked about is, um, I don't think I'll, ever ever get to the amount of books that you've read (laughs) I I remember walking into your office when I didn't know you at all really we we just started working together and it was full piled floor to ceiling with books but how important has your thirst for reading been Uh in shaping your career (laughs) yeah it's it's really critical and I should say look both of my parents were book editors and so that that apple didn't fall far from the tree either right I I probably didn't have a choice in being a, a bookish nerd um, but I, I just find it amazing that for $20, you know, you can go buy the best ideas of a super smart person who knows way more than you do about something. And that person will have spent hundreds and hundreds of hours, right, creating that work. And all you have to do is is put down your 20 bucks and spend maybe eight hours digesting it. And you won't know everything they know, right? But you'll you'll have you know, well-written books, well-done books. It's they're insanely uh, valuable. Uh, I, I read with a, I read broadly, and I read with a very clear purpose. And I'm and I'm ruthless about what I choose to read. Too, my my purpose is is this one question that's been nagging me for 25 plus years now, which is kind of when when how and why do people take on board new ideas? That's what I care about. Because I, I believe in progress, I believe in innovation, and I believe we've got to get there faster. And this relates to all kinds of issues. 
way beyond business, particularly related to, say, climate change, um, you know, the social challenges we have in our country right now, and, and way more. But when, when, how, and why do people take on new ideas? So almost everything I read is somehow related to that. Before I was a dad, I read a book a week. Uh, that was my, my, my pace. Now I read a book every other week um, as a dad. Uh, I, and I have no regrets about, about that. <laughs> I have to spend more time being a dad, and that's so rewarding. Um, and so I, I'm much more ruthless about what I read. I listen to a ton of podcasts. And usually I'll listen to a podcast of an author to decide whether they, I want to read their, their full work or not. So I invest a half an hour or an hour saying, this sounds like an interesting book. Let me see if it's something I'm going to invest in. Uh, and then I'll make the choice. Um, the fields that I read in to be good at what I do are very specific. It's, it's social psychology, behavioral economics, cognitive science, as we've been talking about, metacognition, uh, learning theory data analytics and data visualization, and then storytelling, uh, which includes making sure I've got enough novels in the mix as well. Because I think um, these, these are all the, you know, all, all, the, all the ones except for the last one are all about understanding this question about how people take on board new ideas. Storytelling is the most critical skill to actually being effective at helping people get on board with new ideas. And so I try to focus on that. There's a field I don't study enough that's it's storytelling. Like that's the one I look at and I go, this is really where I need to spend more time. I think that's really interesting because you outlined that you, yes, you read a lot, but you're very, you have a process. You're not reading everything and anything. You're looking at books and literature that support your interest area and what you want to advance yourself in. You kind of mentioned that um, you, you look for books that are helping understand, you know, when, where and why someone has an idea, but also, you know, linking back to what you shared at the beginning and reconnecting with my uncle's story and, and even myself. Sometimes if you just read the right book at the right time, it mm -hmm. can really make a, a big difference. And I, I guess this is a shameful segue. <laughs> well, wait, I want, I want to double click this real quick quick there though because you and I I think this is something different in our orientation because you actually changed my words a little bit to say when we're on why people have a new idea I, I said where when they take on board a new idea because ah. I, I actually think the critical constraint is not having new ideas I think the world has tons of new ideas I think the critical constraint is adoption is people accepting and being willing to go with new ideas like, hey, maybe we should get off fossil fuels. Maybe that would be a good idea. Right? <laughs> it's like, we have that idea, and we actually know how to do it. So I'm more concerned um, with the how, how do new ideas get, get adopted. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that correction, actually. And I guess my, um, hey, I guess my my whole piece is how people have ideas and you're doing the how people adopt it component. So, hey, Chris, maybe we should work together. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I guess, um, you, you know, it's, it's clear in what we've talked about that um, for people listening and who are trying to think differently about something, I think the key takeaways are from this particular part of the conversation is start reading books directly relevant to what you're looking to think differently about, read books that are tangential and provide um, 
different perspectives and even fiction to to keep it all interesting. So bring that information in. And even a quick reference there, Stephen Johnson's book, Where Good Ideas Come From, I, I think it's just brilliant. And his concept of the adjacent possible, which is, you know, the, the, the simplest way, the easiest way to have strong new ideas is just to look in the spaces adjacent to what you're looking at. I guess you can go on to say that, you know, the ideas that are invented or today are not necessarily things that have just sprung out of a cloud that no one's ever seen before. They tend to be connections between one thing and another thing and disparate areas that people have combined to create something new. You totally ruined my segue. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I had a smooth segue into buying the right book at the right time to help you think differently. <laughs> Let's move on now to part two, which is um, your your own book on moments of impact. Mm-hmm. And um, you, in the in in the spirit of collaboration, you co- your co-author is Lisa Solomon, and and um, mm-hmm. and um, you mentioned that you don't read many business books. Uh, at the time your book came out, I didn't read any business books. <laughs> I just didn't have the the mind for it. And I didn't even have kids at the time. Um, but I read yours cover to cover. And I guess I kind of had to because, um, A, you were my boss. <laughs> and B, if I wanted to be good at my job, I needed to read that book. So um, I've had the pleasure and privilege of reading it. But for those who are listening who may not have heard of it or come across it yet, can you provide an overview of Moments of Impact and um, I guess your your author's very own synopsis. Yes, um, and and the subtitle kind of describes the book better than the title. It's how to design strategic conversations that accelerate change. So it's all about how do you get to change faster, how do, and how do you design strategic conversations. So the use case that we're trying to address is like you have ten or twenty people in a room with a messy, open-ended, ambiguous challenge, what's called an adaptive challenge by, by um, Heifetz, Ron Heifetz. And how do, you, how do you make progress against that? So an example of an adaptive challenge would be our profit margins are falling and we don't understand why. There's a lot of different explanations, a lot of different sources. Or talent is leaving our, leaving our organization. People don't want to work here anymore. And there are a lot of, again, a lot of different competing explanations. Those would be adaptive challenges. You know, we want to cut costs by 10% or we want to figure out which market to go after next. Those are not adaptive challenges. Those are straightforward technical challenges you can analyze your way through. So you've got an adaptive challenge. You've got 10 or 20 people in a room. What are you going to do with that? The traditional way to think about that is this is a meeting to be managed, right? You have an offsite, you have a workshop, whatever, you have a meeting, and it's, it's, a, it's an event that you need to manage our shift in imagination in the book is to stop people saying, no, that's not what this is. If you want an adaptive challenge requires learning, it requires shared learning by a group of people who have different opinions. And that's hard to do. And so what you need to do is you need to design a shared learning experience. So each of those words is carefully chosen. You know, designing is a problem-solving sensibility that's holistic in nature, right? Right. You need to design a strategic conversation, not just any conversation, but one where strategic thinking is invoked, um, and that that creates a shared learning experience. So it's, it is really all about learning. So a lot of things we've been talking about, about brain science and about learning theory, uh, are in play here. How do people take on board new ideas? How do they create new ideas? How do they be open? So the book is all approaching it from that way. As, as you referenced earlier, 
I'm a very, despite being, despite or because of being very creative, I'll, I'm a very structured thinker. Uh, and Lisa and I created a framework that's extremely structured. So we sort of work through this process in, you know, a sort of artificially linear fashion. You know, we have five sort of steps to our design process, um, knowing that it's it never works that way. It's never as neat as going one through five, which is how the book is organized. It's always iterative and recursive. That is, as you learn more things about one aspect of the program and informs the other parts. You have to circle back and make adjustments to it. But the short the short answer is, you know, stop thinking about these as meetings to be managed. Start thinking about how am I going to design a shared learning experience that leverages the diversity of the group. Right. So, and then the learning being key in that as well, because it's, um, you know, you immediately set the the stage there for people to you're not coming in here to this meeting just to, sh- to shout off your opinion and what you think. You've got to bring something new in to change the way you think and then process it and bring something new to the party. So it's it's the, the learning and the, the rewiring. And so we prototype. In, in, in every session, we're, we're prototyping solutions. You put a challenge to the group, and almost every session we do um, you know, is kind of three acts, if you will, you spend, you know, the first act thinking about, you know, w- what is the problem? Are we defining the problem the right way? What are the core bits of understanding that we have to have collectively about the problem? So, you know, the key data points and information related to the problem. So we're working from a common platform of understanding. And and, and that's just sort of act one is like maybe a couple of hours to make sure we're defining the problem the right way and we understand what is known about it, data and otherwise. Uh, the second act is prototyping solutions, right? So playing around, coming at it from lots of different angles, giving in small group work, giving people different lenses on the assignment. So trying to solve the problem from the view of different stakeholders, for example, or trying to solve different elements of the problem, but break, either breaking into pieces or coming at it from different angles or both. Um, and so that's that's the shared learning experience part where you really are um, trying to build um, shared experience together. And then Act Three typically is you know looking at the different prototype solutions, trying to take the best of the best ideas and combine them to something that that can work. And so there's minimal amount of time presenting at people. Uh, we all know, and this is the work of of, of Carl Wyman. On, on learning theory that, that people do not learn by being lectured at. It's a very ineffective way to learn. They learn through experience. And so we create vivid experiences for them to play with the possibilities. The other piece that I was thinking of is when you were talking about that act one where people are gaining a common understanding of the problem. I think also everybody learning more about the problem because I guess I have found a lot of the time in the sessions that I ran using your framework. <laughs> um, a lot of people would come in espousing as to what they thought their problem actually was. Um, and then you'd give them new insights and information to help them actually reframe what that that challenge really was about. Because I think often people will perceive something, particularly in business, and they think, hey, this is the problem. You know, the problem is we're underperforming. But 
there's always more to what that is. Yes. Yeah. And you, and you need to create space for that. It's tricky because I, I find it, in these sessions, a lot of the art of it is having the right amount of structure. So if there's not enough structure, it's easy to wander around, get lost, get confused, you know, try chasing the blind alleys, etc. If there's too much structure to a session, it can feel like you're filling out a form, right? You just sort of march is a death march through a process that somebody else is telling you to do. Uh, and so the the best solutions are always, to my view, semi-structured. You know, you've got a high-level architecture of the thing, and around that architecture, there's a lot of room to maneuver. There's a lot of space uh, for openness to different solutions, and that's that's critical. And a lot of people don't get that right. They'll either walk into a meeting with a kind of you know, quote unquote, blue sky thinking approach, which is just a mess. Yes. Or they'll, yes. or they'll come in with, you know, a list of every, you know, every 15 minutes of the agenda is mapped out. And it's like, well, that's not how people talk. <laughs> yeah. And, and no time for lunch. Um, yeah. <laughs> I actually remember going to a blue sky thinking event when I was very early on in my career. The leader, who was actually a really cool guy, um, was part owner of a club. So we went and sat downstairs in the bottom of this club and just sat at a table in a quote unquote creative environment. <laughs> Where did this idea come from that creativity means being completely unfettered, right? If you talk to any serious artist, you know, they are disciplined as hell. Right. They're now now their their processes are different than what we're used to, right? They're not to be confused with a you know a cash flow accounting system by any stretch of the imagination, but they're not just sort of wandering around and then out comes art. That's that's not how it works. <laughs> no, and I I'm probably gonna get the, the, the singer's name wrong now. Like it's been a while since I well, I don't really listen to pop music anymore. I've become a sad thirty six year old that just listens to the music. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I just I'll to give you some references. <laughs> In fact, actually, I'm even lying about my age. I'm 37. I can't even remember that. So <laughs> that it happened a month ago. I think I've just forgotten. Um, but you know, I think it's Sean. Is it? It's Sean Mendes, the this mm-hmm. uh, 21 year old singer, and he has mm-hmm. a documentary. The new thing for like big pop artist seems to have a documentary out on Netflix because Taylor Swift has one as well. The one thing that you definitely pick up from these documentaries is how hard these people work. And um, he he said he wanted to be a singer. Um, and then, you know, people encouraged and supported that. And he learned his ass off and how to play the guitar. And, and developing that technique and understanding his art form then enables you you to create you know you talk about you talked earlier about the framework and to be fair you do not set it out as a linear framework in your book it's circular yeah. <laughs> could we you try to make that clear in the <laughs> diagram yeah <laughs> could you um just highlight the five key points for people on the phone what are the, the key things in that framework that people should take away and remember yeah very very quickly uh the first one is define your purpose so obviously knowing what you're trying to accomplish but the important point there is to create a moment of impact that acknowledges where you are in the overall process of solving a problem so not thinking you can solve a problem in one day which is almost never the case but being realistic about like here here's the delta we want to go from here to here as part of a larger journey of solving a, 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 a huge challenge. So define your purpose is the first one. Engage multiple perspectives. So get diversity in the room, absolutely critical to creative problem solving. 
but also the skill set around engaging uh, diversity and having diversity work for you instead of against you. The third is frame the issues. So don't just throw a bunch of content on the table, but have simple frameworks, you know, two by two matrices uh, and the like that help people get their arms around the complexity of the situation and make progress against it. Set the scene means to create an environment uh, that is conducive to this. And it's not the silly hats theory of creativity, as you say, <laughs> just like get them in a goofy environment with posters of Einstein on the wall and God knows what, but a comfortable, a comfortable human environment, right? One that doesn't scream boring corporate, you know, you know, training room or something like that, but something that's human uh, where people can be, let their guard down, be relaxed, be themselves. And then make it an experience uh, is the fifth one. And that's all about having an experience orientation. So again, it's not like sit back and listen, but roll up your sleeves, be active, and 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 make people live in different realities um, as realistically as possible. So lots of simulation involved in, in making it making great experiences of this nature. Those five things are are the main parts of the, the process. And I mean, they, they address uh, a lot of the big failure points that, that come up um, that we see all the time, which are things like people having unrealistic expectations, what you can do in a day, people inviting the wrong people, like having a must invite uh, team instead of what we call the dream team when you're trying to solve a problem, being overly political and choosing who should be in the room. Um, you know, having fake participation sessions where you 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 ask you you just are going through the motions in order to have people feel like they've been heard instead of actually listening to them. Ugh, yeah, it's just there's there's like so many. I'm anticipating. I think your next question, but there's so many ways that people mess up these kinds of very important meetings. Uh, fear of conflict is another one that drives. Uh, a lot of bad meetings where we just think well, we're going to avoid this issue because we know these two important people disagree on it. Well, you know, you're just you're just part you're just kicking the can, right? When you when you do that, and you have to know how to lean how to be productive and in leaning into difficult issues. And conflict is required for creativity, honestly, for to get to the synthesis of you know you think this, I think that. How are we going to get to the other side of that with something that works? Is, is, is almost it, it requires some level of conflict no you have to you have to like hash things out and sometimes i mean i mean this isn't an example of conflict necessarily well i guess it was but it wasn't spoken conflict i was creating something with my son and i knew exactly what i wanted it to look like i knew exactly what we needed to do and um you know he comes at it unthinkingly and just goes with the flow and starts adding new things to it and changing it. And I'm like, no, no, Kellum, no. Well, I, hope, I hope you corrected him. <laughs> I, I, I tried. And then I actually, then I just let him run with it because I'm like, well, we'll see where this takes us. Um, I'll just work on the bit that I really know needs to happen. And um, he actually did something that was really additive to creating what we were and really made it. So it was my conflict of him breaking everything that I thought was going to be the perfect experience for him. So we can argue who we were designing for really at this point. <laughs> oh, man, um, that's, that's parenting in a nutshell right there. Uh, I know. <laughs> but, yeah, he, he added to it. He built something, and I would never have um, – 
we would never have come across our design had we not had I not created the room for this conflict to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, you mentioned a couple of things there. It's like you know, I think people often I, you didn't cite this as one, and I'm I'm sorry to add it to the to the list. But you talked about having a clear purpose. But I think sometimes people come into meetings with what they think the problem is and just say, hey, this is the issue. Let's have a meeting about this. And nine times out of 10, it's not the freaking issue. No one sat there to diagnose it, Um, which I know is a a big hot word and a big hot part of the process when when you work, which is, um, and I guess it's like peeking behind the curtain, that whole thing that you started the conversation with of really First of all, diagnosing what is the problem that you really want to bring into the room? I think diagnosis, having the right definition of the problem is, is harder than it first appears. Most, you know, what we call in consulting, speak, presenting problems, right, once you unpack them, actually lead to, you know, bigger, more structural underlying challenges, right? And and I find, you know, a core, core orientation in this process is to be completely paranoid all the time that there are massively important things that you don't know. And you have to just keep asking questions and keep digging and keep coming at it from different angles and assume nothing. Like, just keep keep asking questions. Absolutely critical. Then it's like, so they're going, connecting the pieces. So with the diagnosis, you have to keep asking questions, come into the room with the right problem. If we if we take a bad example, you know, someone has decided what their problem is, they've decided what they think the answer is, they've decided who they think needs to be in the room to become partisan of the solution they think that they need to be moving towards, <laughs> and they're doing it around a boardroom meeting table. <laughs> I don't mean to, to say that this has happened to everyone, but I'm sure there are a lot of people in the business world who've been in one of those meetings <laughs> where you don't really, you cover anything and everything and, and then you just end up doing what the leader thought was a good idea in the first place. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, the the key insights that you've shared here are, are you know, literally as simple as have what you, the purpose, bring the right people in, Make sure you you bite size up the problem and look at it um, in without bringing too much in, but the right parts of the problem to get your hands round. Choose an environment that's human, and I think the whole conversation we've had so far is that how you have ideas, or when it comes to accepting ideas, it's a human process. It's not machine led. There's no one to like hold up. You know, you can't plug it in and ask a machine what should we do in this scenario and when should how should we take it on board. It, we are human. It is a human process. So for goodness sake, let people go in an environment that allows them to be free and be them and authentically them and then making it experience. So if, it, if it's really that easy, I guess the experience part can be a bit harder if you don't have the, the techniques and the insight to really know you know, the right dose of presentation versus the right way for people to digest content, et cetera, et cetera. But it, if it is that easy on the surface of having right people, right room, right problem, right discussions, why, you know, why do you think people just don't get it right all the time? There's zero training in this, none, anywhere. It's shocking. Like, it's not taught in business school. It's not. And, and when you think about it, it's like, well, if you're in a leadership role, one of the absolutely most important things that you do is you convene 
people to solve problems together. Like that's because the big problems, big challenges facing any organization are not, they're too complicated for one or two or three people to wrestle the ground by themselves. You need that breadth of perspective and how to get value out of that. It's not taught almost anywhere. So why would they know how to do it is a better question. Right. Well, and particularly the experience piece, because you do need to have a certain degree of understanding of how people's minds work and how what's the right way to help trigger people to have ideas? What's the right way to have people digest information quickly? And how do you help people tie their disparate pieces of information or insights together in a conductive way? Those parts of, I guess, what we do is a lot of where the magic happens. And I know where you work in the sessions that you have, that the experience element is something that's worked really hard on. Are there any particular techniques that you cite in your book um, or that you use yourself that you would recommend to people on this podcast listening to um, just start with, start, you know, starting small on certain steps they can take to make their meetings more productive to allow better thinking? Yeah, I, I think that having a, a, a prototyping and simulation-based approach is key. And it's as simple as asking the question, what if, right? So if you have a problem, you know, and it, and it truly is a complex adaptive challenge, right? Not a simple one, you know, just sort of saying, gee, what should we do, right? You know, you're going to get very flat, one-dimensional responses, right? People are going to look for silver bullets to throw at the challenge. People are leaving the company. What should we do? Let's throw more money at them, right? It might work. Chances are it won't, right? It's probably not the main thing in most situations. So how do you get them out of silver bullet thinking? You play what-if games with them. And the, the kind of what-if games... You know, I, I keep sort of a running list of like standard questions to ask people, uh, like uh, different premises for solving a problem. So an example is, you know, what if, you know, how, how would we solve this problem if we had no money or resources to throw at it, right? You can't spend any money, but you still have to solve the problem. What would you do then, right? Or how would we solve this problem if we had unlimited resources, like, Money is completely no object. Have at it. What would you actually do that? Uh, how would how would a startup company that doesn't have any of our existing constraints, legacy constraints, whatnot, how would a startup solve this problem? I mean, if they they just had no organizational constraints, how would a, how would a grade school kid solve this problem? If you gave this to your your kid or or, or your elderly parent, right? What would they say? Uh, so just keep coming at it from these different angles. And you can't, you know, most of the ideas you get won't be useful, you know, but you'll generate a lot of them. And you, then you can sift through them and go, huh, you know, I've got these, these eight or 10 what if questions. And they actually generated three or four ideas I hadn't thought of before. Now let's kind of play around with the possibilities of combining them and so forth. So that's, that's the mindset of creative problem solving, as far as I'm concerned, and getting people away from just being overly direct and simplistic in their thinking. 
I, I think that's really interesting because you're basically it's ask lots of different questions that trigger different thoughts. And I think when people come into a room, they think when they come to a creative problem solving session, they're going to have to have an idea. But I think, you know, if you are someone who's trying to think differently, you do believe that you are someone who has creative potential, but are not using it yet, using some of the dialogue we talked about earlier, maybe see yourself as a master question asker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you don't need you don't need to be that creative to answer some of these questions, right? And and the, the phrase that you hear out there, the cliche that you hear out there in, in, in the world of, of workplace creativity is think outside the box, right? And I hate this expression. I, I think it's terrible advice because it's basically, what does it mean when you unpack it? You're actually saying to somebody, don't think the way you usually think, right? That's what you're saying. And it's like, okay, uh, how do I do that? And what, is, you know, what does that even mean? Uh, but, but so what you're trying to do is, is make have people think inside different boxes, right? Give them different realities, different constraints, different relax some constraints and plot, you know, apply others and give them different situations to respond to that expand the peripheral vision around the problem, right? That create the adjacent possible because you're, you're coming at it from so many different angles. Just, just, just playing this what if game, anybody can do this. It is really not that hard. It's not that hard to come up with the questions and it's not that hard to, to answer them either. You just have to be, be open to that. Yeah, I really love that about thinking inside different boxes and you get to create what's in the box and then play within it. Like I, I, yeah. I too absolutely hate the phrase thinking outside the box because you, we are asking you to think the way you think. We're just asking you to wake up different parts of your mind that perhaps you're not using so much anymore. And we're asking you to make connections, different connections, new connections with what you've already got inside your mind we yes. just are using different tricks to help you bring that out. Yeah, and that's a winnable thing. You can, people can do that. Yeah, and particularly, it's even easier if you have the right problem <laughs> with the right people in the room, focusing on the <laughs> right parts of the issue in the right setting with a, an experiential uh, of way of doing it. So yeah. I guess before we move on to part three, which is the, the final part of the discussion, Maybe share one story or one technique that people could use tomorrow to make their meeting more experiential or something to consider in how they would make their meeting more experiential. Yeah. Um, so, so one thing that I think a lot of people don't appreciate is you, when, like, how, how do you share content, right? Let's say, for example, you have the outcome, the output of a survey, and you're going to share that survey with the group right and have them discuss it the kind of obvious way to present it is just to stick it up and 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 do a readout right of the survey results the problem with that approach is that people have a very fast kind of post hoc rationalization you know mindset which says whatever you, whatever you share with them they're going to quickly figure out why that was what they expected and they will uh, and they will internalize that quickly so one of the worst questions you can ask in a session like this is, is hey, what of this surprised you? Because nine times out of 10, the answer is going to be nothing. I knew this. <laughs> you know? And I'm just amazed at how many people ask that question of groups, and it almost always falls flat. So what do you do instead? 
when you present survey data, one way that I've done it, so I had a, I had a group, this is a, this is a live example. There's a group and I've got survey data and it's how their customers feel about them. Right. And the survey has like 12 questions and it breaks down roughly a third, a third and a third, a third of the questions people think their customers think they're awesome at a third. They think they're pretty good at, and a third they've got real issues with they're, they're, they're unhappy about. And so I told the group that I said, we did a survey. Your customers think you're awesome at three things. You're pretty good at four. And then you're kind of not so great at, at, at four of these. Um, go into your groups. Uh, we've got cards uh, with each of the questions and put them in the three buckets and tell us, you know, which ones you think it works. And so they, so, so, so each of the breakout groups does this. They organize like what they think the results are first. And then I did a leaderboard where I read out the results from top to bottom, right? And why top to bottom? Because the, the, the punchline is the bad stuff, right? So you start with like, all right, number one, 95% of your customers think you're awesome at X, right? How many people had X in the, 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 the top bucket, right? You go around. And as you work your way down, people are getting nervous, right? Because we're getting to the stuff they're not so good at. And when, when we have the debrief discussion on the results then, you know, it, it turns out that a lot of people thought the things that, that the customers thought they're bad at, they thought they were good at, right? And so when you ask the question, were you surprised? It's not a question. You were surprised. <laughs> you, you said you were good at this or that they would, they would say you're good at this, and they, they don't agree. They don't think that at all. So what's going on here? Why is there a disconnect between your perception and your customer's perception, right? So that's a pro move. You go from a flat readout of survey results to an interaction that makes them guess first what the results are, and then you reveal. And it's it's structured gamifying of an ex- mm-hmm. of something, and yep. um, you you know often if you are in that position where you are creating a game, you have. You already have a view. Sometimes when we create sessions, we already know the an- what the answer is in terms of we know what the survey results are, so we we know where the game's going to end up. Mm-hmm. And other times, it's um, if you are finding yourself in a role designing a meeting experience, you need to almost have the conversation or ask yourself some of the questions that you feel need to come up or have a view even of some of the answers that you think might get things started to then start playing from there. Um, I think that's another piece that I found in designing the sessions that we create is almost having the conversation and imagining what some of the solutions could be to then work your way back to thinking about what's the conversation that needs to happen to bring the group in that direction. I think that survey example is great because it really brings that to life of if you have the answer think about what's the right way of bringing people to that common level of understanding and dare I say it in the right context a little bit of fun and how you do it is not is not a bad thing (laughs) absolutely Uh, levity brings out humanity well yes and that's uh so i have my podcast with naomi bagdanis in a few weeks who wrote the book on humor seriously um about the powers of humor and they talk about levity as the the starting point 
Yep. leads to stronger bonds, creativity, resilience. And now in the moment, I'm going to get the final thing, which is not good. So she'll tell me off in a few weeks time. <laughs> so tune in for the podcast of Naomi to find out the fourth thing. <laughs> um, so um, power, that's it. So I guess this brings us to um, the the final part of our conversation, which is, you know, you've written this book and it did really well. <laughs> There aren't many people out there who are Wall Street Journal bestsellers. And I guess when you started writing this book, did you ever think it would become as successful as it has been? Well, I mean, it, 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 I, we thought it was possible. Definitely not sure. Um, that said, look, like Malcolm Gladwell's not looking over her sh- his shoulder at us, right? It's, it's, yet. it's not, it's not, <laughs> yet. it's not that level of, of bestseller. It, it, it made the list and it did fine in market, but it wasn't like a monster bestseller. It is about meetings after all at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we, we really, um, we worked very, very hard on this book. We interviewed 120 people. We really dug deep into the literature. We tested the content with a lot of people. We had tremendous support, editorial support at Simon & Schuster and and elsewhere with a, a independent uh, editor we hired. So we, we felt we had a quality product and an audience that was ready to hear it. So we, you know, we, we were pleased with the success, not, not, not astonished by it, but, but, but pleased by it. And yeah. It was it was a tremendous experience. Well, because I guess this book, in 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 a way, is well, it is your creative product. You thought differently about a topic, and you went out and created something for mm-hmm. other people to to learn from. And creative challenges. We we talked earlier that creative challenges take a lot of work. They don't just come overnight. And mm-hmm. I I know that you took steps and actions which. You, you know, on the surface, you, you walked away from where well, you took a hiatus from your job to just give yeah. yourself the space to sit down and, and write this thing. So you took a, like, a, a, I guess it's not, I don't know, I don't want to fill in the words for yeah. you. Like, was this a risk? Was it a challenge for you to, to write yeah. this in that respect? Yeah, I mean, there was risk involved because we took, um, Lisa and I took really 15 months off start to finish uh, where this was our, this was our job. Uh, we, we only did this. I had a little bit of income, but not much during this period. So that was a risk. Um, you don't know if it's going to turn out. You think you're going to finish. You don't know for sure. I'd, I'd written a dissertation, so I knew I could produce volume. I didn't know I could produce readable volume. Uh, and so, um, and, and I should mention, I was the writer. Lisa and I are co-authors. We developed all of the content, all the ideas together. I, I sort of was the one who sat down and banged the thing out. Uh, in, in, in prose, and we 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 edited it, it, it together, of course. Um, so so there was risk. I, I, I mean, to me, a critical part is that I married well, uh, and so when I we got the idea to do the book, you know, I sort of it was kind of a big notion, and you know, my my wife Johanna just just would not allow me the idea that I might not do this. I mean, she just said, "Look, this makes too much sense." you know, it's a great learning experience. We'll make it work financially. Just, just, just do it. Uh, and that was a critical part of, uh, for me at least, of this, uh, of getting this done. But I, and it's, I guess it comes back, we talked a lot about the power of collaboration. So you had a partner in your co-author and mm-hmm. Lisa in helping thrash out the ideas and then, you know, your life partner in being there to create a space and give you the support you need to, to make it happen. And, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, thinking of what I do know, I don't know many, particularly in business, any creative acts that come just as a lone journey. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think that's that's got to be super hard. Um, Lisa brought a tremendous network to the book. She brought different ideas. You know, I guess I could have done it by myself. It would have been a much lesser book. It wouldn't have been nearly as fun to to do. Uh, I know most most books are by individuals, of course, although they they have long acknowledgments of, of all the folks who who chipped in along the way and helped them in different ways. Um, yeah, I mean, we're not we're not a solo species as much as Western culture kind of bizarrely plays that up. Yeah. Well, I guess for people listening who might be at the beginning or in the middle of their creative journey, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. what would be a piece of advice that you would give to them uh, to either help them get started or, you know, give them confidence in moving forwards? Yeah. In, in, in book writing specifically, um, um, where, wherever you're most comfortable, I guess, yeah. to make that cool. I mean, I, I think I think book writing is is is, is kind of interesting because a lot of people think about it, and a lot of people don't do it, right? Um, so some demystification of that maybe is in order. Um, John Kenneth Galbraith, the famous uh, economist, uh, long long past now, I think, uh, had a great quote about writing because he produced a lot of books, and he was like, "Well, a book is is really just a page a day for a year. You write a page a day for a year, and you've got a book." Right. And you, you break it down to that and it's like it sounds ridiculously easy. Right. <laughs> and some people can write books in their spare time or on the side or whatever. I had to have singularity. I don't think I would have done a good job on this book if I'd done it like had like a halftime job and done this. I think that would have been very hard, much less full time. But the best advice that I got about just the mechanics of getting it done was many, many, many writers. When you talk to them, say the same thing about you have to write every day for this at the same time of day mm-hmm. like have a schedule and stick to it so i wrote from really 8 30 in the morning until 12 30 every work day i didn't work every single day but every work day sometimes on weekends most of the time just work weekdays but sometimes weekends 8 30 to 12 30 and uh, just just bang it out I averaged a little better than a thousand words a day uh, on the days I was writing. So the man full manuscript, sixty thousand words. So that's you know roughly three months of, of work days to do a first draft, start to finish. Now the first draft stinks, right? It's no good. So yeah. <laughs> harder to measure productivity when when you're going, you know, taking chapter four for the third and fourth and fifth draft, you know, from you know sort of bad to sort of good to pretty good you know that that part of the process is more of a slog but uh, honestly just just having 8 30 a.m to 12 30 every day go home have lunch take a nap and then do some research play some tennis do do some administrative stuff that needs to be cleaned up you know and then get back at it the next day and some days are more productive than others some days you're more motivated more energetic for whatever reason but never, never really hit the wall. Just kept plowing ahead, plowing ahead, plowing ahead, having faith that if we followed the process, it would work, and it did. And I guess there's another piece in that, which is, you know, write drunk and edit sober. I think is the phrase. So, <laughs> right, it sounds as though you didn't judge yourself overly hard in the first go rounds. Um, you got your first draft out, and then you started editing from there. That's right. I was okay laying down a lot of really mediocre prose uh, with unblank sheets of paper. But we had a very defined structure, and our editor at Simon & Schuster was huge in that respect. She took our original structure we did in the book proposal, and she gave us a much better structure to write from. 
And I looked at our, you know, we met with her in New York um, after Simon Schuster purchased the rights to the book. And, and, I, and I looked at her and I, I looked at our structure. I looked at her structure and I said, well, we've been doing this six months. You've been doing this 25 years. I think we're going to write to your structure. <laughs> and that was the right choice. Um, she, she really nailed it. No, that's, but I mean, it, it, I mean, you, you once told me, I, mean, I said, Chris, I'm going to write a book one day. And you said, I only write a book if you have something you want to say. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was really good advice. Yeah. And I, and I wrote my first book at 50 and I look being from a bookish family, my first job was at Encyclopedia Britannica. I always thought I should have a book like that just as a matter of course. Um, but that's not how it happens. You, you really have to. You really have to have the idea and be passionate about the idea. Otherwise, what the hell are you doing? And this this book literally was a book that I had been wanting to read forever. Like I found myself looking for this book and like, why isn't this book out there? Like the creative book on how to design strategic conversations. Why? Why has nobody done this? And I would I kept looking for it, looking for it. And I was like, oh, that's because we're supposed to write it. Like, <laughs> that's my job. Uh, it's not to go read it; it's to go write it. So it was it was clear in that way. Yeah, it's like you're. Well, it's, it's funny actually because uh, ultimately I went and wrote a book about flamingos. <laughs> if if you dig deep behind that, um, it's it's all about um, you know being being true to who you are and you're perfect the way you are and um, that you know going digging a level deeper down from that. I guess that's a passionate uh, value of mine, which I was taught by my parents and nurtured to do by my parents and then lo and behold I've created this product and there was no other book about flamingos the way I wrote it out there in the market so I think sometimes when you're truly passionate about something you see a need for it and you go ahead and you make it happen I guess in my experience and in your experience there's there's space for it it hasn't been done yet and I guess I don't know there's Mm -hmm. a is there a magic to that or is that just because you know you had the right idea the right motivation and you made it happen. Well, this insight of, of of like, here's something that I want in the world. Why doesn't it exist yet? Right. That's a common entrepreneurial motivation, right? Somebody finds like something that they want and they can't find it anywhere. And they're like, this is ridiculous. Why doesn't this exist? And it's like, oh, because I'm supposed to do that. And I think that's the thing is if you're someone who has an idea, um, and I was actually talking about this of my best friend today on our run, like so many people have ideas, but they, they don't make them happen um if you are on the start of a creative journey i guess you know understand how passionate you are about it do you really want this to happen and are you motivated to go out and do it and and if yes it will come you'll have to work hard passion plus discipline that's that's the formula yeah the the last question i had for you is like what is um you've obviously gone through this creative journey and mm-hmm. what has writing this book taught you and has it changed you in any way yeah i mean it, it it's definitely the most powerful learning experience outside of parenting right it's the most <laughs> powerful learning experience i've ever been through because it's such a crucible right you you're forced to clarify your thinking about something that you already claim to be expert in and then you realize how difficult that is and just the the act of you know struggle to make your thinking clear, subjecting it to the external test of other people's nasty opinions, uh, and and being being willing to be you know th- thick skinned about that and come out the other side. It's incredibly intense. It's you know for anybody who has something that they passionately want to 
that they feel they already know well, but they want to be next level at it. Writing a book, it's hard to imagine a better way to to learn. And on the other side of it, having it out, I mean, it's just very nice. So you have it out you, the day that you get the copy in the mail. It's kind of unreal. You're holding it in your hand and it's got your name on it. And it's it's trippy. It's cool. And now it's been out a good while and it's it's a bit, I have to go back in and remind myself of stuff that's in here. Um, so that's interesting. But but the, the main difference, honestly, is um, when I give recommendations now, there's a different level of confidence behind them. And it's not a level of confidence that's about, hey, I wrote a book, so you should listen to me. That's that's not sort of it. What, what it is is that any recommendation I give now, I can provide a kind of, I can articulate the why, right? As opposed to, well, I've done this a lot of times, and in my experience, this is what works. Like, yeah, that'll work. That'll fly with some people. But I can actually like articulate in a really granular way, like, why do we have three breakout groups instead of four breakout groups? I can get real geeky about that. You know, I can get so 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 having that level of confidence and it's still still the client, you know, might might say, Well, I understand your principle there, but here's a reason why, you know, I, I disagree and we shouldn't do it that way this time. You know, I would absolutely listen to that and 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 at times course correct um, based on the the situation at hand but just the level of confidence to articulate the, the why behind my recommendations is a massive uh, shift and has given me you know more confidence in a in a job I was already you know pretty pretty comfortable with. I think that's a really great insight because um you talk about well both me and my husband found ourselves without employment um this year and mine was intended and you, you when you're in a workplace you find you think that you've got ideas you have you have them you have your opinions but you're not really in a position to express them the way you would like because at the end of the day you're in someone else's organization or maybe you know maybe in some interested in instances it is your organization but nine times out of ten if you're in a big corporate it's not yours <laughs> Um, and you're having to play in the environment and the rules of, of the organization you're playing in. So you have to be careful with them. So when you find yourself outside of that structure, you still have your own views and opinions. They haven't gone away. But what you quickly come to realize is that there's no structure behind it. Um, you can't easily articulate it. It, it. it happened to me. It happened to my husband. And we've both had to go on this journey to learn how to be but we haven't written a book, but we've started becoming much uh, more rigorous about writing down our our experiences, writing down our ideas, writing down our opinions, so that you, you know we feel I, I guess whole or we feel validated and confident in mm. what we believe in because we're not within the confines of a. We've had to basically put our own structure around us, if that makes sense. So I guess that res when you talked about your book and how you were already a master in what you did but then writing it down gave you this whole extra level an extra dimension um just i think for people who are in an organization having an idea or have an opinion is you know take some time to just sit there and write it down you don't have to write a book but start getting your ideas more out on paper and more concrete and you'll start to learn and start ultimately to see what's on the other side. Absolutely. That's a great point because you don't need to, yeah, a book is a pretty high bar in terms of investment and everything else. But, but yeah, articles, short, right, even just writing for yourself. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just forcing yourself to get clear on your thoughts. 
so many of our workplaces today are such scatterbrained environments, right? Where we're being asked to slice and dice our attention into such small pieces that it gets it gets harder and harder to think clearly. Uh, but those who do think clearly amidst the chaos, you know, have a have a real leg up. There's no question. This has been such a great conversation because I guess trying to tie it all together and we've covered so much ground is, you know, you have the potential in you to think differently. Get started. Get passionate about what you decide to do. Collaborate with others on the journey. Make connections. So um, read lots of different material. Um, if you if you're looking to find an idea and make connections between what you already know, what you find out, what other people know. And uh, if you're going to have a meeting to have a new idea, have the right purpose, <laughs> the right people, the the right issues, the right environment, and um, the right experience. And um, I guess the other point that we covered is have some fun and, and, you know, don't just zero in. And even when you were writing your book, yes, you created singularity to sit down and write it from eight 30 to three 30, but just like in your tennis game that you're talking about, you're, you're learning a new technique, but you also are doing stuff on the side to, to support it in other ways. So there is definitely room and capacity to have fun and have a rest. Absolutely. Are there any other points that you'd like to end on before we close today? I'll part with one short bit of advice that I'm going to give myself and anybody else who wants to listen to it. Welcome to do so. I, 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 I sort of, I don't give enough emphasis to this with myself. And, and, and that is, you know, I think storytelling skills are absolutely critical. If, if you work on your ability to tell clear, clean, compelling stories it's, it's, it may be the most um, important superpower you can have in, in organizational work today. People often say people are, are natural storytellers. It's not true. People are natural story listeners. That's how we process information most efficiently, most effectively. But telling good stories is very hard. And, and I, I, I need to keep getting, forcing myself to keep better at this. And for folks who are earlier in their careers in particular, I would just just share like if you can get great at telling good stories uh, in in work settings, it's gonna you're gonna be amazed how much uh, of a help it is. So that would be my parting thought. Great, that's a great way to end, Chris. And this has been such a rich conversation, and um, you can tell that you've clearly read a lot of stories, <laughs> and you're also really great at telling your own because you've done it, and it's a, a bestseller. So for people who haven't read it and are interested in creating better meeting experiences for ultimately different thinking, do go out and buy a copy of the book Moments of Impact. It it's easy to read, it's fun to read, um, and it's full of great information. So thanks so much, Chris. I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. More information about today's guest and any of the resources shared during a conversation can be found in the podcast show notes. To find out more about Natural Born Thinkers, please visit the Natural Born Thinkers website and follow us on Instagram at Natural Born Thinkers. Today's show was produced by Force 9 Audio and podcast graphics were designed by Carl Gamble. Natural Born Thinkers is at the beginning of its journey and thank you for joining us on this adventure. Until the next time.